Welcome to Studio Berlin, our current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. I'm your host, Sylvia Cunningham. With COVID-19 numbers continuing to climb, Germany's leaders are delivering an increasingly urgent message to the public. Bitte bleiben Sie, wenn immer möglich, zu Hause an Ihrem Wohnort. Chancellor Angela Merkel is urging citizens, whenever possible, stay home. In a special video message last weekend, she said we're in a very serious phase of the pandemic and the coming days and weeks will be decisive. On today's show, can we avoid another lockdown? And what have we learned since the start of the pandemic? Joining me to talk about this via phone is Professor Christian Karaganidis. He is the president of the German Society for Internal Intensive Care and Emergency Medicine. Welcome, Professor. Hello. Also with us is Corinna Hennig. She is a science editor for the Hamburg-based radio station NDR. She co-hosts and produces the weekly show, The Coronavirus Update. Thanks for being here. Hello. So, Professor, let's start with you. What have we learned since the beginning of the pandemic when the numbers first spiked in Germany? How has the treatment for COVID-19 patients evolved since then? We learned a lot uh, during the last month. And looking back, I would say we now had to change our treatments in regard of the trials we got, especially from UK, with brilliant results. And, um, for example, in the beginning, we never believed that uh, steroids would have a beneficial effect for the COVID patients. And that is now state-of-the-art in patients, at least for those ones being mechanically ventilated. I would not say it's a game changer, but for the very sick patients, steroids are a good treatment option to reduce the mortality. With Remdesivir, we have an antiviral agent with a certain effect. It seems to be, let's say, moderate, this effect. We had some very good results a few months ago. Now the next uh, big trial from the WHO is uh, upcoming, which shows let's say, more moderate results, but it seems to have an effect if you apply this drug very early. This is due to the high copy number of viruses, which starts in the beginning of the disease, and therefore we need to give this drug also in the very beginning. The third point we learned during the last month is that this disease um, induces a lot of thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, because it's not only lung disease, but it's also vascular disease. And by applying anticoagulation from the beginning on, I guess we can also avoid some emergency cases and reduce the mortality also a little bit. Corinna, you've been covering this pandemic from day one. What do you think distinguishes this wave of infections from the one that we saw back in the spring? Well, what we can see as we get a lot of uh, feedback from our listeners is um, that people seem to be less concerned this time. And this makes it different. And this is what virologists tell us um, makes them concerned by themselves because people are a little more careless because they don't see these high mortality rates. They don't see so many patients in the clinics. So this is what might accelerate the dynamic. And I think this is the main difference concerning the public. Professor, as the government starts to implement these tighter restrictions, there's a lot of talk about if another lockdown or partial lockdown is coming. Do you think that that would be the best option to get a hold on the situation this fall or or this winter? I'm not sure about that. I guess uh, the, the main topic for me is 
do we have enough ICU beds to treat the patients? Because this is the, clearly the key. And the infection rate in total is not that decisive because 80% of them are asymptomatic and that does not really reflect the burden of the medical system in Germany. But the ICU beds uh, are the key to it. And uh, I guess we have to look what will happen in the winter because uh, ICU beds are not only for COVID patients, but they are for all patients. And then we have to see if the capacities are enough or not. And I would decide it um, in regard of the capacities we have and if there are some left or not. And with this knowledge, I would decide if we need a further lockdown or not. And the current situation right now in terms of intensive care beds across the country, that's pretty stable. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So in Germany, we have the highest number of ICU beds in Europe. So that's around about 30 per 100,000 inhabitants. That's uh, three or four times more, for example, than Italy has. And uh, that's good for Germany, first of all. The second point is we have only around about 3 to 5% of the ICU beds are covered by COVID patients at the moment, so that's a low number. But on the other hand, uh, we have now, yesterday we had nearly 800 patients uh, with COVID on the ICU, and three or four weeks ago it were 250. So it's increasing, but not that fast uh, as it increased in March. Well, I'd like to add uh, something um, to the point of the intensive care beds, because it's not only about the beds, it's also about the medical stuff. And maybe this is something we have to look at as well, because only the infection numbers, of course, this is too little, because when there are a lot of infected people who don't get ill, this is not the important thing. It's about the situation in the, in the hospitals and the risk persons in this pandemic. But when we talk about the medical stuff, we should also keep in mind that it's not only about a bed in a clinic, it's about people who care for the patients. And this is quite important because when uh, the numbers get higher and it gets diffused in the public and in the population, then there might be even more people who work in hospitals who get uh, infected themselves. And this is quite important to keep in mind that not only the number of beds is the, the critical point, but also the care for the patients. Let's talk about the government's uh, most recent strategy in terms of testing, um, specifically rapid antigen tests. Professor, can you explain what these are and if they might be useful during this time? Yes, I'm, I'm very convinced that uh, rapid testing is really a key for older patients, for if people come together and so on. So that might really help to avoid severe infections. But the main problem of these rapid antigen tests is that they do not have the same sensitivity and specificity as the PCR testing has. And I guess there is really an urgent need that we classify these tests and that we know the rate of felt positive and felt negative tests in comparison to the PCR. And I guess we need this data within the next uh, two or three weeks. And do you think that the approach to testing should be that everyone who wants a test should get a test, regardless if they are actually exhibiting symptoms, or should testing be more targeted? No, I guess uh, the rapid antigen test uh, should be done if they have symptoms. It should be done uh, in older patients. It should be done in hospitals as a screening for doctors, for nurses, and so on, but not for everyone because the asymptomatic patient is not a problem for the German healthcare system. And therefore, I would spare these tests 
but let's say it once more. It's very important that we really know that this test works accurately. Professor Christian Karagianidis is the president of the German Society for Internal Intensive Care and Emergency Medicine, and Corinna Hennig is the co-host of the Coronavirus Update on the German public radio station NDR. Thank you both for joining me. You're welcome. You're welcome. Take care. We're now going to look at the situation here in Berlin, one of the country's hotspots. With the city's number of new infections skyrocketing, the Berlin Senate announced new restrictions on Tuesday afternoon to curb the spread of the coronavirus. Among them, a masking requirement on 10 of Berlin's busy shopping streets and tighter restrictions on the number of people allowed to gather for private celebrations. Yeah, we sind in a besorgniserregenden Situation. Mayor Michael Müller told reporters, we are in a very alarming situation and running out of options to avoid a lockdown. Shortly before the press conference, I spoke with Thomas Isenberg, member of the Berlin House of Representatives and health policy spokesman for the SPD parliamentary group. Mr. Isenberg, thank you for your time today. Yeah, nice being with you. So three of the factors in Berlin's uh, so-called traffic light system, the factors that uh, the government uses to make decisions about tightening restrictions, are the reproduction rate, uh, the number of new infections over a seven-day period, and the number of people in intensive care beds. And that first number I mentioned, the reproduction rate, we know we want to keep that number at one or below, um, one meaning that one person is passing on the virus to only one other person, or ideally less than that. But that number keeps zigzagging up and down. Can you help us understand why it is so volatile and if it's an important number for us to be watching? Yes, it is an important number because it uh, determines whether the total amount of persons affected doubles, for example, over one week or one month. So that's a very important figure. And it's so volatile because it depends on the size of the example group uh, where you calculate with. Plus during the weekend, for example, the regional health authorities report not as frequently as during the week. So of course, there is a fluctuation during the weekend and in, within the week. So it's, a, it's an indicator which could be more precise, but at the time being, it is precise enough to signal whether we will have a problem or not. Of all of these factors, whether it's intensive care beds, the number of new infections, positive test rate, which is the one that's keeping you up at night? Well, at the time being, it's the um, seven-day figure on incidence rate, how many people get infected over the last seven days. This is very important because if it's too many people, then the regional health authorities have a problem keeping track of who got contact with whom. So right now this rate is, is in the south of Berlin. It's quite, quite high in Neukölln. And I think we are closing there very soon a corridor that enables um, health authorities to really act uh, quite proper. Over the past few weeks, there has been a fair bit of confusion over the new measures, whether it's about traveling between states or when businesses are allowed to open. And, for example, here in Berlin last week, a local court overturned the city's 11 p.m. closure order on bars and restaurants after about a dozen bar owners filed suit. But the court did not overrule the ban on alcohol sales between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. How does that work? 
all these regulations so far are kind of governmental executive orders. So this is a problem. It's not a law, but it's a executive order. And of course, everybody has the right to file a suit there at the courts and, and to ask whether this is appropriate or whether there might be um, other measures that do not interfere with your personal rights of freedom so much. So it's very good that uh, laws might be yeah, challenged by courts, and uh, we have to figure out what the proper mix is of all these instruments. Okay, so there is that check and balance going on because the situation is so fluid. Now, a question about the masking requirements. Um, wearing a mask is required in, in many spaces in Germany, public transportation and stores and so on, but by and large, it's not required outside in public spaces. Do you think it should be? And why do you think this has become such a political, emotionally charged uh, question? Well, first of all, I guess that uh, in the next couple of days, we will introduce the requirement to wear masks at some public places. And also this um, is quite different all over Germany, but it's the thing that will be done more and more. And it was a quite political issue in March, for example, when evidence about wearing masks wasn't that clear. But I think evidence now is, is really good that uh, where people get together quite closely and where not enough air might be also available, I mean, to, to transport the virus particles, then it's very important to wear the mask. And um, of course, again, it's something that uh, state law or executive orders um, introduces and everybody has to apply. So it's kind of a restriction of freedom. But I think their evidence is quite good now that uh, this should be done more and more also in some public areas. Thomas Isenberg is a member of the Berlin House of Representatives and health policy spokesman for the SPD Parliamentary Group. Thanks for your time today. You're welcome. We're taking a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with two journalists about if a lockdown in Germany is imminent. And we'll get a global perspective from a World Health Organization spokeswoman. Stay with us. I'm Marco Werman. On the world, we get an outside perspective. And you're able to see where is the other person coming from. Because getting outside yourself can be a good thing. It is the world. Tuesday through Saturday at 9 a.m. on KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Studio Berlin. Today on the show, we're talking about the latest coronavirus wave in Germany and if it can be stopped. Joining me on the phone now is Tom Nuttall, Berlin Bureau Chief for The Economist. Welcome, Tom. Hi there. Also with us is Berlin-based journalist and special correspondent for the LA Times, Eric Hirschbaum. Hi, Eric. Hi there. Tom, let's start with you. Last week, we saw this meeting between Chancellor Angela Merkel and the leaders of Germany's 16 states, and it really concluded with a number of question marks, including regarding travel within the country's own borders. Merkel was reportedly quite frustrated that there was no comprehensive plan that emerged and that there was this kind of stalemate. Why do you think Germany has lost its more uniform approach uh, to handling the crisis? Yeah, well, good question. But it actually reminds me of where we were at the start of the first wave back in March. I think uh, people both inside and outside Germany have forgotten that it was sort of equally, if not 
even more sort of chaotic back then. Um, my expectation is that probably over the next couple of weeks, we will see some more consistency across the country, but it's inevitably going to be a little bit chaotic on the way there. We've seen some criticism now from the opposition parties in the Bundestag, the German parliament, criticizing the federal government for basically taking an approach of making executive orders rather than crafting legislation that's then voted on. Would that be a better approach to this all? I mean, rather than this kind of routine of executive order, people file lawsuits, courts overturn it. Eric, do you think that there is a better way? But it's interesting. The opposition in Germany and the parliament is, is pretty pretty toothless and pretty small um, and pretty weak. And, and they've jumped on this. They've latched on this as one way to get some media attention, I think, by standing up for the thousands of Germans who've been resistant to the government's measures. Um, it's one way for the Greens and the Linke Partei and the FDP to get into the, back into the media coverage and into the discussion. I don't know if it's going to work. I mean, it seemed to be a pretty good system before where Merkel got the governors, the minister presidents together and, and they banged their heads together and tried to come up with some kind of a common denominator, even though it was always probably a bit weaker than some America would have wished. But um, it's a new attempt by the opposition party to try to change the discussion a bit. Tom, what do you think about the chaos over the measures these past few weeks? Um, do you think that there's a better approach? Um, I know that some Germans find it difficult to see that different parts of the country have different rules. And it can be, of course, it can be quite difficult to keep up with, with changes in the rules and regulations. But I mean, we're in the middle of a complicated pandemic um, with imperfect information, with things changing all the time. And actually, I don't think that it's the worst thing in the world to have some parts of the country trying out one thing while other parts of the country might look and see if a particular regulation makes a difference or not. Yes, it means that things are a bit difficult and inconsistent for a while, but you should also remember that a decentralized system carries with it great advantages. And we've seen that. We've seen how successfully, certainly compared to other European countries, the Gesundheitscenter, the health offices have been able to conduct their contact tracing. Um, the testing regime in most parts of the country has worked relatively well. These are advantages of decentralization. And if for a while it turns out that there's some inconsistency with the way that rules are applied in one part of the country and not another. I think that that's not something that we should lose too much sleep over, frankly. Recently, Dr. Christian Drosten, the country's leading virologist, said he was intrigued by a study and idea that's come up um, in England of having these shorter, condensed lockdowns or circuit breakers. Tom, what do you make of that? Yes, this has been a big issue in Britain, the, the so-called sharp, short, lockdown, circuit breaker lockdowns, and um, Wales has just imposed one. I think the resistance, though, to something like that in Germany and probably in other countries would be fairly strong, not least because one thing that we have learned compared to the spring, well, we've learned a little bit more about the behavior of this virus. We, we have a better idea of the sort of conditions under which it thrives and, and propagates than, um, than we did previously. I, I think I would take a lot of convincing that it would be necessary to shut down schools again um, when we still have people who are going to bars for example. So it, it seems like a rather heavy-handed approach now that we're operating in a world of greater knowledge about how this virus spreads than we did in spring. I'm not sure I would expect something like that to, to take place in Germany. Eric, we had you on Studio Berlin back in March at the very start of this pandemic. Do you think 
in a sense, with the second wave, we're back uh, where we were, that another shutdown is imminent, or what's changed? The world has learned a lot since March, and I think um, and everything you read about what the government is saying in Germany and what Merkel is saying, read, reading between the lines, is they really want to do everything they can to avoid another lockdown. They don't want to cripple the economy. They don't want to just randomly close everything. And, and another shutdown would be a lot more surgical. It would be it would be more aimed at, at some of the hotspot things where a lot of the cases are spreading, like restaurants or pubs and things like that. So then if you look at the death rates in Germany, they're still really, really low. I think it's still under 10,000. It's only a a couple a day of people are dying in Germany. So to completely lock down the economy again in the fall with the second wave, I think a lot of people would see that's probably over the top. And I think Merkel and the government recognizes that they don't really have enough public support for a, as big of a lockdown. And that's why Merkel this weekend in her podcast was pretty much urging people just to avoid travel, avoid unnecessary trips. She, she really is trying to stress to people to voluntarily do smart things, socially distance, take the right steps so that the government does not do that. I think they really, really dread the idea of having to take as severe measures as there's been in other countries in Europe against the pandemic. And Tom, in terms of the economic impact of this pandemic here in Germany, how has the country come through so far? I mean, um, not only in terms of health indicators, but also economically, Germany has weathered this crisis relatively better than most other countries in Europe. And I think that there's several reasons for that, um, including the fact that um, the service sector is a smaller part of the economy here than it is in other European countries and the services that have been hit most, of course, by contact restrictions. Um, I would sort of reserve my biggest concerns for other European countries. I mean, the the effect that this pandemic was having across Europe was already, in economic terms, was already massively asymmetric. You're seeing a huge hit in countries like Spain and Greece. Clearly, there's a problem here for Germany, as there is in other countries. Um, And Germany has a particular approach to fiscal policy, um, generally seen as sticking to fiscal rules, keeping debts low, keeping deficits low. And I think there's a bit of angst, um, particularly in some of the conservative parties, about some of the big spending uh, that's been going on in response to this pandemic. And um, that, that would only get louder, I think, if, if the government found that it needed to spend more because we were going into a more, more restrictive phase than we had otherwise expected. So it could be a difficult discussion. But overall, I would definitely be more worried about other parts of Europe than Germany. And last question, um, especially as we're fast approaching the pandemic's first November and December, and that is Christmas markets. Um, You both have been following the government's every move, every development. Do you think that they'll be able to negotiate something to allow the Christmas markets to open across Germany and, uh, of course, here in Berlin? I'm not really sure that's going to work. The Christmas market seems to be the epitome of a place you don't want to be if you want to avoid spreading germs and bacteria and the virus. So I'm not sure I'm going to be going to any Christmas market, but if the Germans really, really want to have them, it looks like they're going to be able to have them in some form. Tom, will we find you drinking blue wine at any Christmas markets this year? (laughs) (laughs) I like the Christmas markets. I think it's one of the best German traditions. I know that Marcus Erder in Bavaria 
has already been saying that uh, if we do have Christmas markets, then you're going to make sure that you, you then you ought to make sure that you drink a lot less of them. And I think for most people, that's the only way that they can stay warm is by um, filling themselves with gallons and gallons of, uh, of blue vine. So it might be quite difficult for people. But uh, I expect we'll probably see some of them go ahead, probably with all sorts of restrictions that will make them rather joyless places. But it takes a lot to, to tear Germans away from their finite market. Well, on that cheerful note, unfortunately, we're out of time. Tom Nuttall is the Berlin Bureau Chief for The Economist, and Eric Kirschbaum is a Berlin-based freelance journalist and a special correspondent for The LA Times. Thank you to both of you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. In the last few minutes of our show, we're checking in with a World Health Organization spokeswoman we first talked with back in March. Dr. Margaret Harris joins me on the phone from Geneva. Hi, Dr. Harris. Thank you for making the time. Thank you very much for having me. Here in Germany, we're talking about this current wave of of COVID-19 infections as kind of the second wave. Is that consistent with what you're seeing worldwide, that there is a new surge everywhere? Or has there not even really been a lull since March when the pandemic started? You're right. There's not been a lull. What people have mistakenly compared this with has been the flu, which does come in waves. But this virus doesn't work that way. If you don't suppress it, totally, it comes racing back. So unfortunately, in too many parts of the world, people thought that once they'd seen a peak and the numbers began to come down, they thought, okay, that's it, instead of continuing to suppress, suppress, suppress. Now, we've heard a lot about the concept of herd immunity, which is usually used in reference to a certain percentage of the population being vaccinated for a particular virus. But we've been hearing it now in this pandemic when there, of course, is not yet a vaccine. So what is the WHO's position on herd immunity during this pandemic? So, yes, our position is quite clear that it's both scientifically and ethically inappropriate. You're quite right to mention that it's actually a concept from the world of vaccination where you look at what percentage of the population you will need to vaccinate and create uh, effective antibodies in to stop a particular pathogen from racing through a population. And that varies depending on how transmissible the virus or the pathogen is. But in this instance, we are looking at natural immunity, and that is whether or not the virus has stimulated antibodies and whether or not those antibodies protect you, and we simply don't know that. So this is one of the big problems with that argument. We don't know enough about the immunity for COVID-19. And secondly, the big problem is the vast majority of people in the world remain susceptible to this virus. So really, seroprevalence studies only indicate that less than 10% of the population have been infected. So that's 90%. That's vast numbers of people. The other thing is we don't know about the long-term health impact. So even if you were going to accept a large number of people dying, and we've seen far too many people die already, more than a million people, even if you're going to accept that, if you thought that was okay, we don't know what the long-term health impacts are on people who may have had a mild illness but continue to have damage in their bodies from this virus. So those are for all the reasons we find this not an acceptable concept. Are you hopeful that a vaccine will be developed, will be available to the public by early 2021, or is that really overly optimistic? 
we are very optimistic about the vaccine. We've got um, over 200 uh, candidate vaccines in some stages of development and 45 in various clinical trials. And we've seen nine candidates that have moved through to the final stages. So we're certainly optimistic that there will be one to two candidates that are very good tools and ideally given all the work not just the scientific work but the work with the the logistics networks the manufacturers everybody is working together um, in extraordinary solidarity to, to make it possible for the candidate vaccine that's identified to be given around the world at the same time but that's critical that is given around the world at the same time to the highest risk groups. Dr. Margaret Harris is with the World Health Organization. Thank you for your time today. That's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's our show today. Be sure to subscribe to Studio Berlin on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Have a good week and stay healthy.